Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Peloton Podcast, where discussions of life, psychology, and spirituality intersect, always inviting us to our whole and true selves. I'm James Trone, and I'll be leading us through discussions on these various topics based on readings, experience, and interviews. We hope you enjoy. So the word or phrase true self, what does it really mean? How do we know when we are in our true self and when we're not? This is what I'll be discussing in today's podcast. In my work with clients throughout these past couple of years and a lot of reading I've been doing, I think if there's one fundamental thing that I'm always coming up to, probably in either every session, uh, certainly if not every day, uh, whether it's in my own personal life or sitting and mirroring back with uh, the lives of others in their own journey, it seems to always come back to this, like what is true self? Um, uh, the idea of what is it that we want to do? Who are we? Trying to ex- explore and find ourselves in this whole kind of maze of life, especially when we're trying to navigate not only our own relationship to ourselves, but a relationship with another, whether it's a spouse, a significant other, and especially our children too. Uh, we keep coming back to wondering what is true. So I thought of if there's any more pertinent idea that we need to start out with on these podcasts, it's this, of uh, finding ourselves and what does it even mean. So I'm going to be gleaning a lot of, from a lot of things I've come across over the past couple of years, things that have been just absolutely pivotal that unfortunately, I, I, fortunately and unfortunately, unfortunately, I, I never received growing up. And I'm not saying just from home, but just in the culture and the in the community. Um, and the fortunate thing is, maybe I wasn't ready to really hear it till the last couple of years, uh, as I've been going through my own journey of life. And so, this idea, of true self, what does it mean? There's a couple of ways to to describe it or define it, and a lot of it does have to do with what religious perspective we're coming from. And and I want to be clear, my process and these discussions aren't about trying to point or having, I don't have an agenda with the idea of spirituality, but it's really to just pinpoint on these concepts that I think are true across the board of different faiths. Some call that the perennial traditions. And in keeping with that, that's what I am attempting to do is not put a certain perspective or lens to it, but of, but really of go back to these essential truths that I think are across the board uh, unified, uh, depending where it doesn't depend on what perspective you're coming from. So true self, what does it mean? Some would call it the Imago Dei, the image of God in us. You could also refer to it as soul of spirit. Others would call it true consciousness. Um, But in order to understand true self, I think it's really helpful to also talk about the false self. So just as we have light, we have darkness. And the best way to understand light is to also understand the darkness so with that, I think it's pertinent and, and vital that we also 
look and examine false self. Um, we'll understand it very well as, as I start to describe it because you'll understand these parts in you as well. Um, a real simple way to look at it is it's our Enneagram number. If anybody, maybe you're coming in knowing what the Enneagram already means or for those that don't, um, the Enneagram is thought to be the world's oldest uh, personality test. Some think it was developed by these desert Sufi monks around 300 AD. Um, but I don't think it does it really justice to say uh, personality test. Uh, probably a more accurate way is really just a map. It's it's not meant to be a, a defining, limiting thing where you take this test and that's who you are, but more of a, a way to describe parts of you or an aspect of you that you most identify with. But in that, when you kind of find your number, there's these nine numbers or nine types. That's what Enneagram stands for, these nine types. What you'll usually do is, is the number of that you hear, it's the one that you're most uncomfortable with because it's the number that is most mirroring back of, of yourself. So for me, I've wrestled with this a lot, but I think I keep coming back to the, the realities that I'm a... Um, a type three or most identify as a type three which is the achiever performer so that's another way to look at that that's my kind of go-to fault self or provisional self another way to say it is um, outside of the Enneagram reference or fault self can be our survival traits uh, our imposter our mask uh, if you will or also our shadow self um, most simply, our false self is known as our ego or our flesh. The truth is, our false self, our ego, it's not a bad thing. The problem is, it just doesn't go far enough uh, in that what we're really trying to accomplish. Therefore, it's our go-to, but it's not, it's not whole. It's not all of us. It's really the things and ways we've learned to deal uh, with life really based on our wounds. So here the reality is every one of us goes on this journey. We're born, we're born into an original innocence where life was good. You know, we really didn't have consciousness yet, but we had attachment, we had love, we had nurture. Um, some of us didn't get as much as we needed. Others got that um, that secure attachment, which would be seen as kind of being born into the lottery. Whereas others throughout life, maybe early on in infancy or, or later on, you started to get these attachment wounds. Maybe it came from parents, family. For others, it came from life's circumstances, culture, uh, living in uh, a country, an environment where there was war, where there was famine, or maybe you were, grew up in America, uh, as most of the listeners have been, where for the most part, everything was pretty peaceful. But it's not without pain as well. And so here we go through life, we start to develop these wounds, these concepts. So we start to develop our ego self, our, our way to navigate life. And it's through those constructs 
of us interacting with others and, and experiencing emotions that we will start to form these traits of what's okay and what's not okay, of these, these ways to navigate. And it's in those things that unknowingly we're starting to more and more put up walls, starting to separate from our true identity. Uh, and this is common to every one of us. So this is a, a universal theme and an idea. But um, we begin to create our ego. And it's upon this this aspect, this way of doing life, that uh, Richard Rohr will reference it as first half of life, where first half of life we're all about building, conquering, um, about family in the sense of creating a, a a career, an idea. So for college students, it's about this dream of what they want to do when they leave. For others, it's about having family, children. But it's um, it's all about thinking forward to this idea of what we hope life to be. And for the most part, it works. We're navigating life and it's working pretty well. But then we enter in upon that place in life why it's called often uh, referred to as the midlife crisis where we begin to be disillusioned because what we thought life would be it just doesn't turn out as we had thought usually it's when life turns out and and unravels through tragedy through tragedy ourself of our own doing through addiction uh, or it comes through tragedy of things that we had no hand in other than it just happened. Life broke through in a, um, a unrelenting, a harsh way, and we're left with just these ruins of uh, unfortunate events and things that we have no explanation for. And oftentimes there's just no words. But it's in that brokenness that we start to grapple with how we ourselves are doing life and it comes back to those existential questions of who we are, whose we are, where's God in all this and it's in that pain and that unfolding that we go back to this true sense of um, sense of self and in a lot of reading I've come back to this place that I've so often sat with people and I've seen it happen um, on numerous occasions where when we can finally slow down and have the space, it seems to, we have this real central tenet of, of this inward thing. Some have called, have called it that uh, ever still small voice that we seem to kind of find our, our true self in it throughout all the pain and throughout all the noise and throughout all the distractions and throughout all the various parts of us that get formed or, or, you know, managers of sorts that are trying to navigate life on a daily basis, that when we can slow down, we start to not only access the inner pain and the, the stuff that uh, of our childhood, such as our, 
concept of the inner child, but we really get even much deeper. Um, when we can sit still and long enough, we start to get in touch with this inner loving parent, this voice that's in us that we know to be true, that's always been there. But for so much of the day and years, we just don't slow down enough to hear it. Where Merton beautifully says, and I've always gone back to this idea of the point the airs, where it says at the center of our being is a point of nothingness, which is untouched by sin and illusion, a point of pure truth, a point or spark, which belongs entirely to God. This little point is the pure glory of God in us. It is like a pure diamond blazing with the invisible light of heaven. It is in everybody. And... Um, it's this idea, it's this image, of this, this point that I think we're always trying to go back to. But the problem is, because of life and our own constructs, we, we start to, we have these coverings, these walls, these parts that are really just illusions that when midlife tragedy happens, those begin to be torn down. So you have this false self that's formed we're doing life and then it comes crashing down and then we're left sitting in this emptiness which if we didn't know to sit in it we go back to trying to build our ego self back and so some stay in the cycle of touching upon that emptiness feeling that nothingness and it's absolutely terrifying I don't care who you are it's that's the thing we keep running from Yet that's actually the very point what we're is what we're made for, if we can be taught and led to sit in it. It's that point of nothingness uh, or emptiness that um, that terrifies us all, until we become accustomed to it and we realize that that darkness that we've been so afraid of is actually a light of sorts. Uh, Roar refers to it as a luminous darkness. While it's a darkness, it's a much better teacher than the light. Uh, and that's where, as he references in another book, uh, Breathing Underwater, we learn to exchange the castle for a coral castle. We learn to breathe underwater. I remember a poem I heard probably about a year ago uh, by David Wagner. And the poem is entitled Lost. And the poem goes as, as, reads as this. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are, are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger. You must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. And I think it really speaks to that idea of stranger. And the point of it point of reading that is that we again have to find a way to slow down to stop uh, you know 
as a child and an adolescence and early part of life and especially in the American culture it's all, all about a go it's go 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 all about achievement achievement so for me as an Enneagram 3 of course I'm going to be trying to perform achieve and and I'm just bent that way but then as life has interceded and and things have unfolded in different ways I found that or really, I should say, I've been forced to slow down, to stop, and take in these questions and these feelings, really, that I've tried to avoid for so long. And so I'm having to go back, and we all are invited to keep going back until we give room for it. I remember reading a blog a while back from Donald Miller saying, you know, pain is like an uninvited guest. And it's, it's a it's an uninvited guest until we give attention to uh, what the guest wants. He'll keep coming back until we finally accept what it's trying to teach us. And I think that's just so true of what life's trying to do. And the, the gift is that we get to find ourselves again, our true self, if we're willing to honor the pain and make room for it. So this idea of... Uh, you know, of our ego, our true self. What does all it mean? Well, at the end of the day, we're trying to do relationship, relationship with ourselves, with others, and with God. But the problem is, we get our in our ourselves in the way, or it's our mask, or it's our pseudo self, or false self that keeps getting in the way. And that's why, in a lot of couples work I do, it's it's. It's this idea, and I know it sounds strange, but I'll I'll sit with one person and, and say, you know, I'm actually sitting with 30, 30 people of you. That here I know I'm sitting with yourself, but it's these also these parts of you that interact and take charge and and you know we have these parts. If you've ever thought of um, trying to make a decision and when you think, well, part of me wants to do this, part of me doesn't. That's that's what I'm talking about of, you know, these these conflicting parts. And so within relationship, you know, as you're trying to do life with someone else, you, of course you'll you'll have this part all of a sudden out of nowhere jump in, especially when we've been wounded that wants to make our case known or wants to defend or we want the other person to see our side of things. And so that's just another way of looking at this part or aspect of you. But there are always there's these various um, you know uh, contradictory parts, and so one person that I remember reading at one point, and I don't know who said this, but we're all walking contradictions, and so here we have this idea of trying to navigate not only us, but then you put someone else in the mix, and so it gets so confusing about what is real, what is true, what's the whole point of this, and and that's where as a couple you get lost in a cycle and uh, trying to be able to trust you know who this other person is next to me because I don't even know who I am some of the times and so within relationship especially early on in a marriage or until you hit your 40s and 50s it's you know you're doing life a way you've known how this other person's doing life as they've known how and hopefully if by chance you're on the same path, going the same direction, but obviously it doesn't always work that way. But in the relationship, I think the goal and the benefit and beauty of another person is they know you better than anybody else. 
so they see you and see both the contradictions of you but also the goodness of you too and that's why our relationship so matters and why it's important and what's what it's what we're all after but then there's this aspect that you know we're made for connection to connect with ourselves to connect with another to connect with god but we're also made and we need our own autonomy we need our space we need our individuality um Maslow's hierarchy of needs, he would refer to as like our self-actualized self, where we become fully us in our um, fullness or our wholeness. But to get to true self, I think there's this constant theme, and every writer um, references this when it regards the true self. It's the it's the, the idea of pain, suffering, of death. One way to think of it, it's the path of descent. And Richard Rohr, Father Rohr, says it beautifully that the truth is we have to be taught the way of descent. And to be taught the way of descent, I think, is we also have to be taught to learn how to sit there. Uh, I remember growing up, there's that phrase, I don't know if I heard it in just pop culture or off a movie, but it's, uh, don't just stand there, do something. But it's instead of that, it's switching it reverse of don't just stand there. Don't just do something, learn to stand there, or rather learn to sit there. Don't just do something, sit there. And that's where mindfulness and contemplation comes in. And this idea of mindfulness and contemplation means a lot of things. It certainly means what we most know now as we hear of mindfulness. It's the breathing exercise. It's it's the learning to sit by ourselves and learning to sit still. But also it's, it's mindfulness throughout the day of hearing a beautiful song. It's something resonates so deeply that it causes and invites awareness of life and and invites those things to slow down so mindfulness is another way of just those moments when life breaks in that we can stop and pause and contemplate albeit driving down the road and you you take in a beautiful sunrise or sunset or the leaves or seeing two children play and you you take in that moment uh, or seeing a red cardinal fly by it's those moments in life. And so that's certainly a mindfulness. The other is the actual practice, which we need. And, um, or another way to think of it is contemplation. I, I loved it in, in one uh, video YouTube that, uh, that was filmed with uh, Richard Rohr speaking on uh, becoming stillness. He says, it's, mindfulness is not new age, it's old age, it's ancient. But the problem is, I think we in the Western world have lost that art. So now we've associated as Eastern thought, Eastern uh, mysticism of sorts. But the reality is it's always been there Uh, for anybody in the Judeo-Christian world. It's, you know, you would, you actually see it in the scriptures of Jesus going off and he would go off, off into the wilderness but most likely the idea is that he wasn't going off to, to go read and study. He was going off to sit and be still and to contemplate and certainly to pray. 
but to pray probably by listening more and talking less. Um, and it's a beautiful idea that I think is actually true. So we also have to be taught how to sit, how to sit still. And it's usually in those ma- moments when life and beliefs collide that we learn to pause, we learn to sit. And, and again, it usually happens midlife because how often do you see adolescents and uh, young kids practicing uh, mindfulness? Not really. They don't even need to because their motor is on go and they're all about conquering and play, uh, which is, I think, how it's meant to be. You know, children early on in life, they still are able to be present for the most part. They're connected to things of the world and, and they're okay in those moments just taking all the life uh, that life has to offer. Uh, I liken it to, you know, for the first time if you go out to the beach or Yosemite, you're just taking it in in awe, the beauty, the, uh, the smell, the scenes. But the more you see it, if you lived and worked on uh, in Yosemite National Forest Park, that you get used to it the newness wears off and you begin to become less and less mindful of your environment and it just becomes a normal thing. And I think that's what happens to us as children as we do life more and more, the, uh, the newness wears off and we become less alive to the moment. We become more kind of numb uh, to those things that, we used, that used to make us so excited about. And so it's like we have to go back and... Um, and sit in things that we've been running from. And ultimately, that's our gift, that's our blessing. But it's in the pain. I, I remember a couple of years ago when some, it was a July, I guess, of 2015, when one evening I, I um, life really began to unravel for me and I um, drove to my father's home. Uh, here in Nashville and and shared and opened up about some things that I had been holding in for a, a year or so and and shared and caught him up to speed of some things that had been happening and he um, looked at me and he said James you know if it wasn't for your brother's suicide or your mother's illness I would have never have found peace now part of me was like what are you talking about? I don't understand. Because what I did understand was how painful these last 15, 18 years had been. But this other much deeper part of me, it resonated so deeply with because I knew what he was talking about. I knew that he had, through all that pain, found some peace. And I know... And, and I knew he wasn't saying that he's glad those things had happened, but also I knew he was saying that he probably would never have found that, that peace or really that connection to true self again if it were not for those things. And it was in that moment that he also looked at me and he just said one other word, the unfold, unfolding. Unfolding. It will unfold for you. Watch it. Just give it space. Life's going to unfold in a new way. And that has slowly over time played itself out. And it's, it's in these, these, 
these moments of pain that um, that I think we have to, and we need other people to help us mirror back our true self. And it's to speak forth not our false self, and it's not to bring shame, it's not to bring judgment, but it's to be with us most often to sit in our silence. And it's also to bring hope. And it's where another poem came to mind, and it's called uh, The Gates of Hope um, by Virginia Stafford, I believe. And it goes as this. I'd like to read this. Uh, Our mission is to plan ourselves at the gates of hope, not the prudent gates of optimism, which are somewhat narrower, nor the stalwart, boring gates of common sense, nor the strident gates of self-righteousness which creak on shrill and angry hinges. People cannot hear us there, they cannot pass through. Nor the cheerful, flimsy garden gate of everything is gonna be all right. But a different, sometimes lonely place, the place of truth-telling. About your own soul, first of all, and its condition, the place of resistance and defiance. The piece of ground from which you see the world, both as it is and as it could be, as it will be. The place from which you glimpse not only struggle, but the joy of the struggle. And we stand there, beckoning and calling, telling people what we are seeing, asking people what they see. When I first heard that poem read, I I was... I think I just had this inward yes of that's it, that's it. And ultimately we need room to provide space for God's work because he works in secret. And I was reminded of that, uh, St. John of the Cross, uh, a Catholic mystic in, in the 1500s said this, that God has to work in the soul in secret and in darkness. Because if we fully knew what was happening and what mystery transformation that God will eventually ask of us, we would either try to take charge or stop the whole process. Ultimately, no one enters this place of of willingness, but we have to be taken there. And it's this place, though, that we have to learn to sit in our silence that that the true self slowly arrives. And I was reminded of, um, as I was putting all this together, of one of the first quotes I read across of, of the soul was of Parker Palmer. And he, he says this, the soul is like a wild animal, tough, resilient, savvy, self-sufficient, and yet exceedingly shy. If we want to see a wild animal The last thing we should do is to go crashing through the woods, shouting for the creature to come out. But if we are willing to walk quietly into the woods and sit silently for an hour or two at the base of a tree, the creature we are waiting for may well emerge. And out of the corner of an eye, we will catch a glimpse of the precious wildness we seek. And it's in that, it's in this idea of soul true self that I think that's what it's all about we're trying to find it but but I um, have also found that it's it's the running of our away from our pain that's creating more suffering instead of the running to our pain and if we can find and develop a sense 
of um, of endurance to run towards it that we start to see that we become slowly transformed and it's in this transforming that we become and realize that it's uh, that there's a that we find a way a new way to do life and it's not that life becomes easier it's just that because we died more often that we're we've died so many times now that we're no longer afraid of the great death because we've found a new way to do life and if anything we've become and found a like our our um, a way to enter into a flow of service because I think a big characteristic of uh, when we enter true self it's life's no longer really about us it's about doing service, but not service by means of performance, because that's an entirely different thing that I think many of us have learned growing up in the in in our religious um, communities that we have to perform, we have to be better, even though uh, our institutions will talk about being saved by grace. The reality is, no, not really. We're still told to perform. And no one's really willing to sit with us in these dark moments. Um, yet it's those who that have been uh, in so much hell themselves that they they have found that there's just a new way, and it's no longer us doing the work, but something within us. And I think when we we start to to hook into true self because our false self has fallen off. The, our hearts begun to be open up to true compassion and hospitality. And I came across this from uh, a, a writer uh, just today on this idea of, uh, of this and um, that, uh, that this idea of hospitality, this idea of, of what it is that we're wanting to do and um, and I, I believe her first name is Dorothy, uh, last name Buck. But Buck says this, that as a risk waking up to my desire for communion, connection, allowing love itself to transform my vision, I can no longer pass by homeless people as though they do not exist, nor can I make distinction between those who have wealth, education, or position and those who do not. I can no longer deny that I, too, am homeless, a refugee, a victim of social or political injustice. To sacred is given us to, despite, to us despite our unworthiness, failures, and human limitations. That place cannot be touched by anything I do, yet it calls me to transcend myself and see others as they are, sacred. Today, this moment is also the last opportunity we have as human beings to recognize the sacred meaning of hospitality and the overwhelming responsibility we have as guests when we enter the homes and lives of others, both at home and abroad. For when we know the sacredness of hidden, hidden in the depth of every human soul, how can we refuse anyone hospitality in our own homes or pass by an opportunity to treat others with compassion. And for me, when I read that, I, 
I know that really what she's talking is that thing within her that um, that touching upon uh, the the true self that when we're in touch with it ourselves it that judgment just subsides and we can see that that's really what it's about and so um, it's in this journey and I've been recently blogging about this that I um, that we have this journey and these this the, that we evolve in the, these stages this we evolve um, in consciousness if you will that early on in life it's all about I am about me you know it's that adolescent it's that teenager it's that um, you know 20 year old that um, that his life is about looking in the mirror and looking good and trying to to achieve 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 that we shift into this um, behavior that that we need good behavior to get us out of that first stage into the second stage uh, that we then learn about good behavior and out of that we learn to have emotions and if we keep growing and maturing we learn to really become a good and uh, a good upstanding citizen um, but the problem is it's still the smaller self until you know, that dark knot of the soul enters in, which is, I'm about my shame. I am my shame. I am powerlessness. Uh, where life and beliefs collide and we, everything comes crashing apart. But then in that, that's where we, over time, when we get to know that deeper thing within us, that ever still small voice, that's always been there. It's our internal yes, that we find that we don't have to look outside of us but we have to look within that we actually start to realize that I'm much more than I thought I was that I am my larger self which sends us into uh, a more enlightened stage that uh, that I'm connected and that we can start to trust that the things that we want are actually good and that that we can trust ourselves that it's not all of us is bad we're not all bad we're actually good and it's because we're connected. And then that final stage that a lot of these mystics will talk about is that I am me, that we become okay with us in our humanity. And we learn to um, do life as it was always intended to be, which life doesn't have to be about us anymore because we are this happy participant, you know, following up, really living in a flow because we don't need our attachments anymore. We don't need those things of, of, that have hindered us in the first half of life because we're doing life in a new way. And so, as I've been contemplating and, and wanting to, to read and, and process, I couldn't help but, but start off and, and share this because of these ideas. A lot of these podcasts, if anything, will be touching on elements, elements of this overall idea because I think it, it always comes back to this whether it's the La Point Vierge or uh, True Self but um, it's from this that all of it flows out of and so I look forward to talking later weeks with not only me but uh, Leah Void as well as we'll be bringing in people with inter for interviews and ideas and concepts whether it's spiritual psychological uh, discussions just on life, culture, arts, but all, it always stems back to this, 
So I hope you've enjoyed and uh, until next time.